Evil to the right hand, puts her down. He's going to dump him hard to the ice. Brady Leopold just loves to fight. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome My dream of being a professional hockey player became a reality, but it was all taken away from me in a very short period of time. For many years, hockey was my outlet. Hockey was my drug. When I had a stick in my hand, nothing else mattered. I was able to break into the Western Hockey League in 2004, and I even won the Swift Current Broncos Rookie of the Year. During the summer of my rookie year, I experimented with drugs for the first time. After just seven games in my sophomore season, I walked away from the Swift Current Broncos due to personal reasons. Nobody knew I had been sexually abused at the age of five. I did everything to hide it from everybody, but I just couldn't take it. Drugs and alcohol now took over my life. I did return to the Swift Current Broncos as a 19-year-old, but things were never the same. I was eventually traded to the Kelowna Rockets in my final year of junior where I got to play on a line with the Dallas Stars captain, Jamie Benn, and one of my best friends, the extremely talented Colin Long. It was by far my best season ever, and I even signed with the Tampa Bay Lightning's organization. A dream come true, right? That's when everything went wrong. First it was the cocaine, then came the Oxycontin, and that led me into a 12-year journey into the deepest pits of hell. Within two years, I had now made the switch to heroin, fentanyl, and everything in between, and I was now an intravenous drug user. Multiple suicide attempts and over five trips to the psych ward, I was a shadow of who I once was. By 2014, I was homeless on Hastings in Vancouver, the worst street in North America. By 2015, I was a wanted criminal, making the Crime Stopper headlines more than once. After spending three years in jail, I had completely given up. With nowhere to turn and nowhere to go, I finally started to get honest. I took a chance and made some major changes. This is my story. I overdosed over 10 times. I'm one of the lucky ones. And for that, I will always be grateful. This is for all the men and women we've lost. Matthew Lazinski, Mitch Fadden, this one's for you. My name's Brady Liebold, and I've been to hell and back. This is the road to recovery. I'm grateful, oh yeah, able, oh yeah, I'm stable, oh yeah, no What's going on, guys? Welcome. Hockey to hell and back, episode number... 68. I'm Brady Leibold coming at you guys live from Muskoka, Ontario. Super grateful that you're joining me. If this is the first time watching, thank you. If you're a repeat customer, thank you so much. I know a lot of you guys have been with me from the virtually day one. I know David Carlson probably watching right now. Shout out to him. My longest listener since day one. Thank you to everybody who supported my journey in recovery through this podcast. It's gone way better than I could have ever imagined. But I'm also here to report that times are still tough. I'm 18 months clean, but I'll tell you, the, the road of life is like up and down. I'm up and down. I'm just really grateful to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation uh, that I'm going to have with my guest today. 
always about hockey. Primarily, we talk about mental health and the struggles that come after hockey, and that's going to be much of what we're we're probably going to talk to talk about today. So I'm just really looking forward to it. Uh, before I go any further, I got to give a special shout out to my friends at Howie's Hockey, who sent me a box of stuff the other day, laces uh, for my rollerblade across Canada and different things. They're like, whatever you need, we got you, their official partner. Thank you to the great people at Howie's Hockey. I'm looking forward to working with you guys uh, down the road, closer to the rollerblade as well. But very, very grateful uh, for your support. Just another thing that's kind of just over my head. Can't even believe it's happening. Um, but before we do get in, to the episode. You guys know that I honor somebody that we've lost in the hockey community to mental health challenges, suicide, overdose, addiction challenges. Uh, and that's what these pictures are behind me. If you've never seen the show, you're wondering what these pictures are. These are all hockey's angels. They're all in this picture right here. Probably not all of them, but the ones that I have found through research and connecting with families, here they are. And it is my mission, our mission here at Puck Support to make sure that Every single one of them is never, ever forgotten, that they're honored, that they're talked about on a daily basis, and that their story can help empower others to either get help or keep fighting uh, and to just also offer support to the families who are still struggling. And also on top of that, for other people who currently are going through challenges right now, just to let you know that you're not alone and this does not have to be the path. And today is the 10-year mark since the world lost Rick Rippin. And so Rick Rippin is behind me here. And I battled Rick in junior. We were in the same division. And everybody was scared, so scared of this guy. Everybody knew he was a Golden Glove boxer. He was an incredible hockey player, such a great guy. Played for my hometown, Vancouver Canucks. And I was at the game where they honored him after he tragically took his own life. And uh, just want to just remember Rick tonight and always, but today is 10 years since the world lost Rick Rippon to a senseless suicide. He was obviously hurting, but if you're hurting, that does not have to be the end for you. And that is what this is all about. And uh, I got to meet Rick and I know that he would sit, sit, share the same message with each and every one of you. I'm really having a hard time with this one. This was one that really, really hit home to me back in 2011 after hearing the sad news. So sending our deepest condolences and remembering Rick Rippon on this August the 15th. One quick word from Regan Bartell and our friends at Team Mission. We'll be back with Steve Seftel. Hi there, it's Regan Bartell, the play-by-play voice of the Kelowna Rockets, Brady Leopold's biggest fan. Team Issued is connecting all walks of life. Team Issued does this by recreating that special feeling of being a part of something bigger. A community for all striving towards the same goal. Teamissued.ca. Promo code TOEDRAG15 for 15% off. Thank you, Regan Bartell, Jesse Paradise, everyone at Team Issued. Make sure you check them out on social media at Team Issued. I got my Team Issued hat on tonight, actually. One of 20 that I have in my room, but... Make sure you guys check them out. If you haven't seen this show, I guess you're just going to have to wait. But if you do watch this show, you know how this goes. We'll see you in a couple minutes. Well, tonight's episode has been over a year in the making. One of my very first guests on the show was Doug McLean. And since that time, him and I have become very close. But after our first episode that we did together, he told me that I really needed to check into the story of Steve Seftel and that, in fact, he had just help write a foreword for his book. 
Doug had told me that Steve had actually been suffering from his own mental health struggles since retiring from hockey and even while he was playing. I was sold. Born and raised on the outdoor rinks in Kitchener, Ontario, Steve Seftel was drafted to the OHL's Kingston Canadians in the 1985 OHL Priority Selection Draft. The very next season, Seftel joined the Canadians in the OHL and after battling an early injury, came back to get drafted in the second round, 40th overall by the NHL's Washington Capitals during the 1986 NHL Entry Draft. After two more very successful seasons in the OHL, it was time for Steven Seftel to turn pro. With the high expectations of being a second round draft pick, there was no doubt his hopes were high. Making the jump from junior to pro is such a challenge and the pressures can often be too much. It's been a hot topic on this podcast, the toxic masculinity of hockey and not feeling comfortable to share inside the dressing room with our teammates, coaches, That certainly was the case for me. That's how I felt, and I know that's how Steve felt as well. After five seasons in the American Hockey Leagues and four games with the NHL's Washington Capitals after being plagued by injuries, Seftel was forced into retirement, now faced with the crisis of what to do after hockey and feeling like a failure, and more than anything, feeling like he had to do it on his own. And from that time on until 2018, he was completely silent about what was going on with him mentally and the mental health challenges he was having. That all changed when he decided to write his own memoir entitled Shattered Ice. After Doug McLean referred me to Steve, I of course reached out and to my surprise, I got an instant response and he even sent me a copy of his book. His book is filled with stories about his real life experiences with junior hockey, with the billeting process, transforming it into a pro hockey career and life after hockey and the struggles that he's had with mental health. Since the completion of that book, by sharing his story, Steve has become a strong mental health advocate and even gives speeches and encourages others to reach out for help, just like he did. That's enough for me, so let's do it. Let's bring him in. After all this time, it should have happened a year ago. I take full responsibility. I'm sorry, Steve, but the time is now. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Seftel. What's going on, buddy? How are you? Good to be here, Brady. I'm glad we could connect. Uh, and I like that Kingston tragically hip intro that's, there. That's, that's why. Sure. That's why. You know yeah, that. For sure. That's awesome. Yeah. I want to say to you, too, boy, I've watched your, your growth in the last year, and I want to thank you for the leadership role you've taken on with mental health and, and addiction. And you should be really proud of, of what you've done in the last, uh, what is it, 15 months approximately. Like, uh, it's awesome. And uh, I've been following your path, and you should be really proud of yourself. Thank you, Steve. I, I truly do appreciate that. There was a time not too long ago when I had trouble even hearing that, and I've since been kind of corrected and coached along by a couple of people, one in particular, to just – just say thank you and just listen. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's been, it's been fun, but I'll tell you, it's been a grind as, as you know, just trying to, uh, being, a being a man, uh, being anyone's 
suffering with addiction or mental illness can be a huge challenge, as you well know. And so, you know, I want to echo those words back to you. And we're going to dig dig into your story a little bit here. But, you know, you went you went quite a while without, you know, mentioning to, to anybody that anything was really going on with you and trying to cover up and mask. And I've read your book and listened to you on different podcasts. So I'm kind of well versed. And I just thank you for being in honest and open and sharing your experience through hockey and life because uh there's a whole other side to it that a lot of people don't see right well it took me yeah absolutely and it took me a long time to get there and i'll tell you a quick story about me finally coming to terms with it It was 2018 uh i would i suffered what i call a mental breakdown but jump ahead a little bit when i was dealing with that mental breakdown i was seeing a, a, a therapist because I really was in a bad place. Um, they sent me kind of immediately to go get some immediate treatment. And I sat down with a, a therapist and at the end of the session, she was just kind of doing some fact gathering, but she said to me, have you ever heard of Michael Landsberg? And it immediately connected with me because he's a sports guy. He's a, you know, TSN, he's the hockey guy, but that's all I, that's what I knew him as. And she said, well, since you know who he is, I suggest you go watch his videos on YouTube. Really didn't know what I was going to see. So I immediately went home, followed the instructions. I Googled Michael Landsberg on uh, YouTube, and I ended up with these videos. And it was him doing a presentation about his mental health struggles, and it was jaw-dropping for me. Like, I, It's the first time in my life. There he is. Yeah, sick, hashtag sick, not weak. Um, it's the first time in my life. I heard someone speak about mental health and that was just three years ago. So that kind of tells you still how new this is and how fresh this is and that there's still a long way to go, but what a relief um, to watch that video and to hear someone else saying what they were going through. And I honestly thought nobody else dealt with this. And I mean, it's saying that now three years later, seems kind of you know, like, <laughs> how could I have thought that? But that's where we were. That's where I was as an individual, and that's where I think society was at the point. At that point, it was just starting to to creep in, and now it's just gaining more and more momentum. And it's a movement now, and like that's why I thank you because you're part of that movement with your puck support uh, activities and the network you've created. Well, thank you, and you know I think we can. All, that's the only way it's going to happen is if we all play a part in this and we all, you know, speak our voice and share our stories because, you know, there's one story that really stuck out and and for me, and I'm sure anybody else that has moved away from to play junior, maybe not everybody, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure we must collectively, the two of us know multiple people who went through the same thing where your parents, you know, take off, leave you, leave you at the rink and you're waiting to go to your billets and they drive you to your billet house and, and you're left alone in a room and, or you're in the room and, and, you know, you start to well up, you start to cry. And and you say, well up me when that was me, I bawled my eyes out when my yeah. dad left. Yeah. I was so terrified, so scared in swift current and much like you. And, and I'll let you elaborate on it a little bit, but it's like, Hey, well, you better figure out a way to get through this. Cause you're here to play hockey and it's like camp starts tomorrow. Um, so you better figure it out. So tell us a little bit about that experience for you, because it was really hard for me. Well, you stole my thunder a little bit there. I was going to use the word terrified, but you, you, you agree with me. I was terrified too. Yeah. Um, in my case, moving four Kingston's four hours away from Kitchener 
and what I, I like to say about that is my parents were not visiting me on weekends with a four-hour drive. They're my final year there, the Kingston Canadians. Yeah, and uh, my That's parents were not you. visiting me yeah. with a four-hour drive. And uh, I remember them dropping me off at the Memorial Center and the veterans all talking. They're talking hockey and things. They all knew each other. They're shaking hands. And I remember walking in with my suitcase and feeling like, well, this isn't, I'm not too uh, obvious looking here and standing out like a, a sore thumb with my big black or uh, blue suitcase at the time. We had a meeting at the arena and then they did billet assignments like prior to being dispatched for the night. And it was in the early evening. My parents had left and they said, you're living with the Stone family. I got to drive over there with uh, a teammate of mine, Scott Pearson, who was living on the same street as me in another home. But I'll never forget getting dropped off. Uh, it was Denon, Ellis, Denon and Dennis and Ellen Stone were the, the couple's name. They were a little older. Their daughters had, were married and had moved on. And, yeah, we talked about breakfast. I remember that because you had to get up early for camp. So hockey's on your mind. So it's, it's a combination of this amazing experience where you're, you're so excited for training camp. But you're also, as you said, and, and I'll say it again, terrified at what's coming down the pipe potentially. And uh, I remember going up to my bedroom with that big blue suitcase and I put it down and it was just, the room was nice but small. Had a bed and a dresser and, and a couple end tables. I just remember sitting on the end of the bed looking around thinking it was so different, so new. Parents are long gone. You know, you've been with them until that point your whole life but you've got this hockey journey in front of you hey I, I started to get some tears in my eyes and I just snapped out of it immediately because I started thinking about the next day and what that meant and I have a funny line in my book that I mentioned there is I remember the, remember the moving the movie uh, League of Their Own with Tom Hanks and there's a, a funny scene in that movie that still makes me laugh today where one of the he's coaching a a women's baseball team and one of the girls makes an error and uh, he just kind of gives it to her with a, a verbal barrage and she she starts to cry and he says are you crying are you crying there's no crying in baseball and i remember kind of thinking you can't cry here you got to be a man and face this training camp like a young man and you suppress all those feelings you're here to play hockey kind of instantly changed my tune and that camp started the next day. The other thing is funny story I'll have to add about training camp where you're feeling like you're just sticking out and you're just like, everybody's like, look at me. But you're, uh... when we went to camp back in those days, the new guys didn't get equipment from the team. You got your equipment when you made the team. Mm -hmm. So all the veteran players are wearing the Kingston garb, right? They got the, the full gear on. And here I am coming in from Kitchener and Kitchener in those years, we were green and gold. So I got this big, <laughs> ugly green Cooper helmet on with, uh, and my green Cooper alls. And, uh, it was kind of embarrassing actually. <laughs> it was like, so everybody knew who the rookies were based on the equipment you were wearing. Kind of funny. What was, what was your experience? I mean, I, I think back to that story and I mean, it's, it's so true for so many of us just being in something similar to that, you know, where your parents leave, you're at the rink and here's the veterans hanging out, they're getting along and they feel, and, and there you are as the new guy. And I've 
what, like, like I said, there's so many of us that probably in that situation where I was like, man, do I belong here? Like I, I really questioned whether or not I was ever going to be able to fit in at this level or with these group of guys. And then all of a sudden you got to go from that feeling of feeling alienated or questioning yourself or all of that to here you are alone at this new billet house and, and all of this happening so fast. And like you said, being trying to just snap it back and say, okay, I'm here for hockey. Like, how was that for you? And like, how was it being a rookie for you and junior? Like what, did you get picked on? Did you get hazed? Was it, was there times where you were like, is this for me? Like, did you ever almost leave and go home? Like, what was the overall experience like for you, Steve? Uh, as far as uh, you mentioned the hazing, I mean, that's a, a big topic. I remember our coach, uh, Fred O'Donnell, said no hazing. He didn't want any hazing in the dressing room. So we didn't have a, a rookie party that year, which was probably fortunate, I guess. Or maybe I was one of the lucky ones. I got away without having... Really, uh, we didn't have a rookie, a traditional rookie party that year. Um, you know, the, the only thing I recall from that season is the infamous uh, putting all the rookies in the bathroom yeah. on the bus. I don't know. They, it, I'm sure there's different names for that over the years. This is Fred O'Donnell, by the way. This yeah, is... there's my, played for the Boston Bruins. Yeah. Great coach. I really enjoyed playing for Fred. So um, – it's kind of refreshing. Sorry to cut you off. It's kind of refreshing to hear that even back then, because we're talking the 1980s that a coach was saying that because I think, I think it, it continued to happen and still continues to happen on some level. And I mean, for, for me to hear that for a coach uh, to say that kind of surprises me because I feel like it's kind of passed down or at least it was, it was like, it was just sort of widely accepted that this is hockey culture and this is the way it is. And the coaches aren't going to interject because they had to go through it. Usually they're players and they had to go through it. So they kind of just turn a blind eye to it, but it's kind of refreshing to hear that. So yeah, sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I agree with you. And uh, Fred was a, a really good coach. It was his first year with the team. They hadn't made the playoffs in three years. And I think he just wanted to set a tone and uh, some accountability and worrying about the product on the ice. But I will tell you, my rookie year in Baltimore made up for uh, what I didn't get in Kingston as a 17-year-old. I got it good there with the uh, traditional shaving, head to toe, and uh, yeah, I got straight made up for it that year. Straight out but, of young blood. Yeah, just like I've yeah. seen young blood. Pretty much, but uh, we were—I was pretty lucky in Kingston. And as far as my rookie transition in kinks and just talking about that year a bit more, it was different for me because I broke my ankle on the second day of training camp. Yeah. And uh, so that delayed my obviously playing games and really my involvement with the team was kind of on the perimeter for those first couple months. So no doubt. yeah, it was really, a, I wasn't the traditional, you know, death, you know, kind of, going right into thrown right into the fire because I couldn't play. So I tell a story in my book. Um, the first exhibition game we had that year was in Peterborough and there was 180 minutes and penalties. And I remember watching on crutches and just, you know, kind of my eyes were bugging out of my head because I just never, I had never seen that live and in person before on that many fights, that meant frequency and, you know, the just overall animosity on the ice. And then game two of our preseason was back at home against the Belleville Bulls, who are our arch rival. And the building was packed. And 
I remember thinking, like walking around the rink, thinking, why are so many people here? Well, I found out there's 299 minutes and penalties in that game. So I think the, the fans knew what was coming from playing our arch rivals in <laughs> exhibition. Um, that game, too, there was only two periods of hockey played because uh, it got really hot in the rink and it got it turned into a fog bowl. So they could they canceled the third period. So those 299 minutes were in two periods of hockey. That's crazy. I also, Steve, I also heard you say too that because of that, because you were out, and I never really thought about that because we talk about trying to, you know, find our way as a, a rookie on a team and, and not playing for those 20 games would put that, would set that back even further to me, right? Like not, you're not on the ice. You're not playing with the, with the guys. You're not really meshing and, and doing everything else. You're like you said on the perimeter, but I also heard you say that because you were out watching and because the back then, especially the league was a lot tougher, a lot of fights that leading into your first game, you were actually more focused on getting your first fight than scoring your first goal. But you happen to do both in the same game, correct? Uh, yeah, I did get – that is correct. I got my first goal and first fight in the same game. That's right. I also felt like because I missed the first two months of the season, pretty much I would say everybody on the team had had a fight at that point. Yeah. And here I come in after my injury, and now I'm the guy who's green who has still as a rookie and has not dropped the gloves yet. And I did feel some pressure. Maybe I put it on myself, but I felt in the room like I had to – to drop the glove to show the team that I could do it and was willing to do it. So I was putting some of that pressure on myself, but on the same time trying to just get in the lineup on a regular basis, which was not easy uh, two months into the season. So you're right. Uh, what happened was two of our guys, Scott Pearson and Brian Fogarty, um, another great guy who's no longer yeah. with us, but Tragic. what an amazing talent. They were yeah. away playing for team Ontario at the program of excellence over Christmas of 85. So the first game after Christmas was in Cornwall and I got moved up in the lineup because Scott was away and uh, cause he was a left winger as I was. And that game I scored my first OHL goal that game. And I remember being <laughs> after scoring, being just jacked up for that. So I thought, what the hell I'm going to fight tonight too, just get that out of the way <laughs> because I just thought it, ha it had to happen and why not do it now? We got a goal, do it tonight. So <laughs> I fought a guy named Mark Evans, who was from my area here. I uh, played for the Kitchener Junior Bees when I was a midget player. So I knew who he was. And, uh, you know, it was one of those fights where I initiated it. He probably didn't know it was coming. The linesman got in fairly quick. But I remember going back to the dressing room because there was less than five minutes left in the game and just being so stoked that that was behind me. Like, I'd at least done it. I didn't get my face caved in. <laughs> I uh, It was okay experience. So then... Yeah, that was good and kind of carried on from there. I earned a spot in the lineup and got some trust from uh, Fred and he started playing me a lot more. That's Mark Evans, by the way, back in the day. It's as close. Wow. I think that's 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 what it's telling me on Google. I, I try yeah. to find these pictures as we go, but uh, that's just a cool story. And it's just the way I, I think that junior hockey certainly was up until not that long ago. I think it's getting a little bit more phased out now with the fighting and everything else. But I certainly had those same kind of feelings coming into the Western Hockey League. Um, and thinking that there was pressure on me, but like a lot of times reflecting back, it was me, myself, putting pressure on myself. And I think that was my 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 biggest downfall as a hockey player was never believing in myself or being too hard on myself or not just allowing myself to really like 
succeed to my full potential because of my my mental mindset and the things that were going on mentally is that something that you kind of feel is true for you and 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 what was the difference between you know junior hockey and, and migrating to pro hockey because it, people don't underestimate i think hockey players underestimate what that jump is really like even going from major junior to the american hockey league like it's it's a big it's a big jump huge it's a jump. huge step I'll tell you, so let's, I'll talk about the fighting first because I have a funny story to tell, which is also yeah. in the book. Because I, I, there's a famous quote that I love by Mike Tyson that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> I yeah. love, and so what happened with me is I got in a bunch of fights, you know, in January, February of that rookie season. And I was feeling pretty good about myself. And we went into Belleville one night and I challenged a, a tough 19 year old player named Todd Hawkins, who was drafted by the Vancouver Canucks and played some pro hockey as well. And he was one of the tougher guys in the league. Like he's a good fighter. And uh, boy, he, he, I saw it on video after I throw one punch and then he throws this big haymaker that hits me right in the mouth, right dead center. Um, on video, you can see my legs just melt into the, like they just buckle and I just melt into the ice. And I remember waking up, Hawk, yeah, that's him. <laughs> that's I remember him. kind of coming through on the ice and saying to myself, don't make the trainer go out, come out. Don't make the trainer come out. You get to that penalty box and show everybody that you could take the punch and you're okay. Like, yeah. So I got to the penalty box under my own power, which I considered a personal victory. <laughs> I remember taking out my mouth guard and it was full of blood and I just dumped it in the box put it back in um after that game i within the next 48 hours i needed a root canal he hit me so hard he loosened my two front teeth with a mouth guard in and it was the hardest man like so i said i'm fighting felt good until i got that first big bomb from a guy who knew how to throw them and it was uh wow it, it, it mentally really set me back like i like that, that's one of the toughest things about fighting is how do you come back after you get your butt kicked and somebody mm -hmm. really lays you out. So it did a lot with me mentally that I, I really struggled with. Like you question how tough you are. Should I be doing this? And then you realize that you just got to play the game hard and you, you can still get your nose dirty. And if, if it happens, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean I never considered myself a tough guy by any means, but I always felt like I would do anything to make a play. So if it meant getting run over and getting my head crushed in by a body check or someone giving me a two-hander across the back, I didn't care. I would make the play and take the punishment. Stand in front of the net, get whacked, cross-check. And if you had to fight, you had to fight. Well, but you talked about – go ahead. No, go, well, go. Say that turning pro um, – that's a, I think that's even a bigger jump because you're, you're, you're talking about guys, a lot of guys in the minors, especially in the American League, they've played in the NHL already. Remember my first year in Baltimore, we had a Louis Franciscetti, uh, had a pretty good NHL career, but at that time he was being uh, sent down by the Capitals after being on the team for a couple of years, the Baltimore. He wasn't happy about it, but I mean, this guy had been in the league for a while. And now he's in the American League. And I remember looking at him thinking, like you were saying earlier, do I belong? I'm looking at Louie on the Baltimore Skipjacks and thinking about me as a 20-year-old skinny kid thinking, oh, man, I don't even think I'm in his class right now. 
but it is a it is an apprenticeship. It, no doubt it is. The guys in the in the American League in particular are it's a fa- it's the second best league in the world, in my opinion. Yeah, I, and uh, I, the guys are they're good, they're fast, and they're talented. And there's a lot of guys in the minors who are just so in the American League who are so close to to getting that spot in the NHL. They just need a, a lot of times they just need a break or an opportunity. So there's definitely a, a learning curve there for most guys coming out of the the junior ranks in Canada. Well, yeah, and you you came out as a pretty highly touted pro- prospect. You know, drafted 40th overall. You're on the stage in in Montreal. Uh, rode the train up there with your family. The whole experience, very very cool, and um, a dream come true. Like you've, you know, you get to that point, and that to me is you know success. Like that, that's a great accomplishment, a huge accomplishment, but. And then the next step, right, is is turning pro and, and trying to make a long NHL career. And I've had several guys on this podcast who uh, were drafted very high and for various reasons, you know, their careers didn't quite pan out the way that they wanted to, whether it was uh, injuries or, like you mentioned, just maybe not getting that chance, maybe just being in the wrong situation and your your window passes you by like that. That's the world of hockey. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a, just a very hard transition. So you ended up playing four games in, in the NHL. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I've read your book and I've heard you talk and I, I want to get into where you're at today with it. But for a long time, you looked at yourself as a failure. Right. And yeah, that, your sure did. Career, that your hockey career was not a success. And before we say anything else, you're drafted in the second round. You played four games in the NHL. I mean, played five years in the American League. I mean, that's a great hockey career. Right. Like that's a like you could say you've made it further than me. You made it further than probably 99 percent of the population in the world. But then for all those years, you carried around this burden like, hey, my hockey career was a failure. And I did the exact same thing. I couldn't even watch hockey. For years, I was so bitter, so mad at myself. I should have done this, should have done that. And it hurt too much. It just, it it hurt too much. So tell me a little bit about what life was like transitioning out of hockey and how that came about. I know there's injuries there and stuff, but tell us a little bit more about that and, and what it, that was like initially. And then we'll get into where, where you're at now. Well, when I, I did have some, as you mentioned, I had some ACL issues that kind of forced me into a corner on the in my last season where I had had my left ACL repaired. Now I tore my right ACL. The caps weren't being quite as supportive with the second one. I felt like I was in limbo a little bit with them. So long story short is, and the mental health was kicking. Like my, my uh, anxiety was really at a fever pitch at this point. So I made the decision to leave and, you know, when I look back, if I had had a clearer head or would have talked to someone, if we had mental health uh, advocates back then, there was someone I could talk to about it and maybe could have got on top of it. And I know things would have been different because I left the Caps in December of 1992 with a, a spiraling mind and ang- an anxious, panic-filled mind. And I was still under contract. Like, looking back on it now, in hindsight, like it didn't make any sense. It probably didn't at that time either. But in that moment, it felt right. So I'm under contract. I tell David Poyle I'm going to retire. I remember driving to the cap center to sign my release papers. And it was like dead man walking. Like I, I just felt so horrible going into that building for the last time. And then I moved back to Kingston. Caps paid me for the rest of the year to sit at home, which 
again, I had the spiraling mind, but so to talk, to answer your question, I went home and in my mind, I always measured, like you said, how, you know, I, I played a bit more than you did at the professional ranks and maybe some other people, obviously, uh, and other guys had longer careers than me, but I always measured that in my own head against mm -hmm. myself. And mm -hmm. I didn't really look outward of that. And uh, I had a goal in mind and I didn't achieve it. So I thought I had kind of let everyone down and punished myself because I was no longer in control of my life. And at that point, I always wanted to have control of my life. And that happens a lot in athletics and in hockey in our sport, because people tell you where to be, where to be for practice, what time yeah. to eat, what yeah. time's the meeting. Like your life is around these schedules and this control that you have of your, your schedule and your time. And I lost that real quick. And I didn't know what to do in that point. And I'll tell you a quick story. So when I went home, this is, should have been another sign and it was a sign, but not at the time. I didn't see it. My wife and I, we went back to Kingston. I was so devastated and lost and and sure that no one was going to ever like me again because I wasn't a hockey player anymore. That when we would walk through the mall, if I saw something, we were, I'll tell you a specific story. We, walked, we were walking through Sears back in the day in Kingston Shopping Center. And I saw someone I knew and I darted for a coat rack. And I, I kind of hid in the coat rack till that person was out of my view. And my wife was just staring at me like, what is wrong with you? And I just said, I can't be seen. Like, nobody can know I'm here. Like, this just can't happen. And like I look back on it now and think, wow, like, it seems so obvious to me now. But at that time, it would have been 1993, I, it, I had no idea what I was dealing with. I just thought it was me being me and but it was uh it was that mental health that anxiety the panic i suffered from and the lack of control that was just spiraling for me uh, to a point where i didn't know what to do with myself wow uh, that story you know I, i'm familiar with that story i actually have it written in my notes right here because as you know i i've done a little bit of research in that but you know, that was another one that I was going to bring up. So I'm glad you did because it really hit home for me because I had the same thing happen, virtually the same story where on more than one occasion, right? Because, and there was a time when I would have walked anywhere with my head high, proud, you know, yeah. I would have been looking forward to running into these people. Yeah. Right? Because, well, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll give you another story on that line. So, yeah, like you said, you would have been proud to run into those people at one time, and me too. So I'm back in Kingston where I played junior hockey and was obviously – like I was well-liked for my time there, three years there. And this one cut too. It cut me, and and I know it cut him at the time. But So we were talking about billets. I, I lived with the one family the first year, and then I moved to another house for my last two seasons, Larry and Janice Moran. A shout-out to them. That, that They were a great family treated me you know, terrific in my last two years there and they're still uh, I still talk with them today but I did not think anybody in Kingston would want to see me at that point like I was saying and I'll never forget I'd been back in town for four or five months and I ran into Larry my billet at a convenience store and he was just the look on his face you know was like I can't believe you're in town and you didn't come see us mm-hmm I could see it like I, I, it, it cut me because I could see how hurt he was like and it wasn't personal. It was me 
it was me struggling with myself and who I was and what my role was and what I was worth. And that I thought they just wouldn't want to see me. And, you know, again, looking back in hindsight, after I had, you know, done a lot of work on myself, I realized that probably should have been the first place I went to in Kingston just to talk and share and who knows what they might've helped me get over at that point. But I pushed everyone related to hockey away yeah. and that was a big mistake. Yeah. Well, again, that's another one that resonates with me and I, you know, I'm familiar and we'll probably come back to a couple other things, but we can just jump right into that because I'm thinking of it now. And if I don't do it now, I'll forget. That's just the way my mind works. But when you finally decided, you know, to, to get help and then write your book shattered ice, um, you reached out to to Doug McLean, who's now a friend of mine and was uh, your favorite coach of all time. Um, and you know, you you can tell the story, but you know, met him and and you kind of realized in that moment that the hockey world was kind of always there waiting. Like they were, they never went anywhere, yeah. but you pushed them away. I did the same thing, and I'm seeing the same thing now that I'm starting to share my story. But much like you. It was like, well, I'm no good to these people anymore. The hockey community, well, no good to my family and friends. Like, I'm no good to myself. I had no idea who the hell I was. And yeah. I didn't want anybody to see me. I didn't want it to face anything. And that's just led me into this dark path. So how, how did you manage all that? I'd say it. We say that. I've heard Michael Landsberg say this. Yeah. Is wearing the mask. And I think sports, when you're in athletics and at the level we played junior and professional ranks, because of some of the things I was just talking about with uh, your life kind of being planned out for you, you can mask a lot of the, the things you're dealing with on a personal level. And, you know, a lot of players, when they get out on their own after games and whatnot, that's when we slip back into some of the, maybe some of our bad habits. Yeah. But while you're playing and when you're with the team, it, it can mask a lot of the things you're feeling and you can just blend in with a group. Yeah. I talk in my book about I compare hockey to being a pack of wolves. Like we run in packs and there's strength in that pack. So as long as you're in that pack, you can mask a lot of the things you're dealing with. And because the team's always around you, you never really leave those guys uh, as that group. And I know for myself personally, some of my worst moments in pro hockey were back in my apartment in my own bedroom by myself. Like I, I would, feel like the walls were closing in and I had nowhere to go. And I would actually, I've had this terrible, this habit, which still kind of happens today to some extent where I would need some sort of background noise. There was talk radio, music, listen to a Well, we didn't have podcasts <laughs> to listen to back then, but it was talk radio for me. I needed to feel like someone was in the room with me yeah. or else my mind would make me go kind of mental. Like I, I know that's not a good word, but, I would feel like I was losing control of myself inside my own head. I that was one of my biggest challenges. But then when you go to the rink, hey, you're with your teammates, you're you're doing what you love, playing a sport you love, and you can hide all that stuff, sweep it under the carpet again. So when you when you retired, what is that what does that look like? Like how how was the transition for you and you know I talked about earlier, I, I didn't really give the date, but essentially from, you know, that time on until 2018, which is a pretty long period of time, you basically suffered, and, and probably even a little bit before that, I, I think the number is somewhere around 35 years where you kind of suffered in silence. So what did that time look like 
Um, and was there times that were maybe harder um, as time went on or was it like up and down before you finally got, got help? And what was the ultimate deciding factor um, where it was like, okay, I need to do something well, about this? I can, I'll answer that last question in a moment. Make sure I remember the deciding factor. I know exactly that moment. <laughs> um, uh, so as, as far as the, the years leading up to that from over those uh, talking about 20 years there, I'll give you a couple of things. So one, uh, I went back to school for a while. I was at college. It was going well. Um, I had what I would call a, a panic attack where I lost, kind of lost control one day at school. I went to a mall and I wandered that mall for six hours. It's not a story I've shared that with many people. I have shared it on a couple occasions. I wandered a mall for six hours not, I don't have any recollection of the, those six hours other than walking there and, and then driving home. I don't really remember what I did from nine to three, <laughs> this, walking around this mall, um, just being in my own head. So that chased me out of school. And I remember one of the professors calling me saying, are you sure you want to do this? And the same thing, just like the hockey. I said, no, I, I pushed away. Don't, don't talk to me. I'm done. It was a very short conversation. I said, I'm not coming back. And I didn't go back. Skip ahead. I I, uh, I was in Kingston. I moved up to Kitchener. It's my hometown. I thought I'll move back home. Um, my family was still out. My family still here. I thought that would help, and it did. Uh, at that point, now I had a, a child, a young son, and another one on the way. So now I'm a dad. So that certainly was a that being a father is you know that's an amazing experience and. I jumped right into that, you know, with both feet, my wife and I, and you know, that was a, I don't want to say distraction, but when you're a parent, now you're all full on caring for this little human being and there it's on you. So it really does consume you in your time and your energy kind of focuses immediately to this child. So when then we had two of them, so that, you know, that became a, a full-time commitment if you want to i don't think like i just i'm a parent now so it was another just a way to get out of my own head yeah so i went to work and worked here uh what what did you do for work steve after so i went to toyota in cambridge ontario i'm still there i've been there in uh we build the uh lexus and the toyota rav4 the lexus 350 and uh so i went to toyota i was moving through the ranks kind of progressing and I uh, got to a management level, and boy, it just uh, again that spiraling. I didn't see it through those years, but what it was is I would suffer from anxiety. That anxiety would manifest as anger, and then I would lash out in some fashion. That anger would turn to guilt, and then the guilt would turn to sadness, kind of depression, and I was down in the dumps. And really, that was the cycle that I was doing from the age of 20 that I just didn't realize it had a name or it was actually something other people than me experienced. I thought I just experienced that. I just thought that was my quirky personality. Little did I know that there was actually, you know, a medical name for it and, it, and maybe I could treat it. But what happened in 2018, um, you know, I had a, a moment where, so again, at work, I, I ran, you know, I had this pattern of running. I ran from hockey. I ran from school. I ran from my position at my job. That turned into me being home alone one day and then uh, having way too much put into my system that caused a, 
caused me to be in a really bad position physically and uh, caused kind of my family, all of my family to uh, have to run to my side and I put them through a really rough 24 hour period and myself, but I felt more bad for what I had done for them. And it was, so you asked me what was the moment uh, when I decided to change. It was the day after that. My wife kind of came into the room when the dust had settled and I was somewhat coherent again. And she just said, you've lived 50 years like this. Do you want to live another 50 like this or do you want to do it differently? And that was just the punch in the face I needed or <laughs> like that hit me over the head where I just thought I said to her kind of broke down and thought no I like I don't want to live like this anymore something has to change and it has to be me and that's when I started down the road is just uh, seeking out some help and uh, that's kind of brought me to where I am wow that's uh that's that's it. That's quite the story. But I mean, it it comes back to having those great people around you to support you, like your family, and to be there for you when when something like this happens. But where are you I'm at not, now? Like, sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm going to tell you another quick story. Uh, so it, you know, and one of the things that was really hard to do, I sat down with a couple, clo- a close friend, two sets of close friends. And I had to, I tried to tell them that I was suffering with my mental health and that I had been diagnosed with having an anxiety disorder and a panic disorder. And I could not get the words out of my mouth. Like it felt like I was, I don't even know how to describe it. The words coming out of my mouth were painful. And I felt like that's the stigma, I guess. Like I saw, I know we've, it's, we've say it all the time now in the stigma. But it was such, the stigma is so strong, I couldn't mouth those words to my best friends. And it took everything to say it. And I felt so much shame internally and guilt. But of course, they they didn't see it that way, but that's the way I saw it. Yeah. And then another moment was when I watched, just after I watched Michael Landsberg, I watched a TED Talks video about panic attacks. And it was this woman from the University of Ottawa. And she she did a, she, she said she was acting, but she said to the group, I'm going to show you what I go through when I suffer a panic attack. And she went through from the, the early stages to full on chaos. And I watched this, like it was about eight minutes and I watched her go through each step. And I just was, my mind was blown because I could relate to each step all the way through the eight minutes as things started to change in her body. And you could see it on her face. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I've never I can't believe that there's someone else there who goes through this exact chain of events. And I played it funny. So the, it's not funny, but the where I was getting with this is I played this video again to share to kind of say to my family, this is me. This is who I am and what I deal with. So I played it for my wife and my mother and it brought them individually, but it brought them both to tears. And then I was like, no, no, I I'm not showing you this to upset you. I'm showing this to say, this is what I deal with. And then we talked about it and they said, no, we, we understand. We just feel bad that, you know, that's what you go through. But I thought they were crying because <laughs> they thought, uh, you know, I don't know that they felt, I didn't know exactly why, but I wasn't, didn't want them to cry. It wasn't the response I was looking for. Cause I was kind of like, 
excited that, hey, I'm not alone here. And they were like, oh, my God. You know, kind of, well, and that tears in the eyes. That was a real moment for me, too. How how has it been, though, since since you, you know, started to share not just with your wife, with your family, with your friends, but kind of openly because you kind of took a chance and, and wrote the book Shattered Ice and you're now pretty active, uh, maybe not so much with COVID, but now hopefully now that things are opening up, I know you had plans to to talk to some more schools and different things and, and share your story. So what is the overall response been like from people and how much better do you feel about it today versus that very first time when you were trying to stumble out those those words to your friends? Like, is it been is it easier now? It's totally easier, and I've, I mean, I, it, and it shows me how we can change things and how you're changing things with your mm-hmm. podcast too by just talking about it more and more, and getting it for me getting involved in the community. I mean, the book the book was written as a bit. It started as therapy, like it became cathartic. It just brought me back to those moments that that I just struggled with as a player and never wanted to talk about because I felt like no one wanted to hear my story about a guy who didn't make it. That's how I saw myself. And then I kind of, through writing it, I realized that it wasn't just making it as an NHL you know, regular for 10 years. That's the success. The success was the journey and the friendships and the the, the places I went and the people I met and the, the, you know, the friendships you make when you're a kid and you still have as an adult and that camaraderie in the room, all those things, you know, I, I kind of forgot along the way when I was suffering mm-hmm. and didn't acknowledge what, what, uh, how, no, how lucky I was is I guess the, you know, gratitude is another word I've come to appreciate through my yeah. therapy and talking to people I didn't have enough gratitude at, after my career, and I certainly have only come to terms with that in the last couple of years since I've been, you know, seeking out help. Gratitude is a pretty profound thing, and yeah. something that is very important to me as well. And again, just like everything else, it's it's sometimes easier done than others. And there's times when I'm, you know, feeling legitimately very grateful, and other times where I'm still kind of feeling sorry for myself when I shouldn't be, but it's just that, that, that mental health, I, I have multiple diagnoses and mental health as well. And, um, you know, there's just, you just kind of have to take, take it and just keep moving forward and try to, um, pick yourself up. I, I don't know what it was like for you, but for me, when I'm having a hard time, it's hard for me to get moving. But once I start to get moving, I feel so much better. And I know this, but trying to, actually make myself understand it and get myself to do it is another challenge like was was the struggle for you like right from like did you struggle like quite a bit from the time you retired till you decided to take help that day and start to actually dissect what was going on here like how how was the 20 plus years uh of working at toyota and and being a dad and everything else like were you once again just putting masks on pretending like everything was okay and you're still living with all this all these emotions of not making well, the NHL or whatever. Like, what was that like? I'll tell you another tough moment when uh, this the, the spiral really started in 2011. And this is a story I haven't shared uh, really on any other to anyone else I've really spoken with. But uh, in 2000, my younger son was a pretty good hockey player himself. That's the his shirt behind me. The, pardon the me? Is he the firefighter? Uh, no, he's the, my younger son, Nick. Actually, he just joined the Navy. 
Okay. He's out in Halifax. Uh, he's going to be a naval communicator. Just finished basic training. But yeah, that's Very his shirt cool. behind me, the one in the black and the gold. Um, okay. But in 2011, he had a, a significant head injury away from the rink in an accident he was in. Pretty much ended his career because of the major concussion. He had a subarachnoid bleed. It was it was a major concussion. You know, we were just thankful he he was with right. us. So, like it was significant. But you know, the, the selfish side of that is that, and it's hard to say it, but it, it's what I was going through. The selfish side of it is when his career. They said when the doctor said you really shouldn't play hockey anymore. I kind of ended my career again as a, I felt like I had let him down in some fashion, even though the accident had nothing to do with me, but I just felt like maybe I had let him down and that's, but I relived it through him, my own career kind of coming to an end. And it was uh, almost like an out of body thing where I just, I, it took me back 20, oh, you know, 15, 20 years. And I was reliving my own end of my own career. And I felt kind of guilty for that because my son's in, you know, in a bad way. He's really injured, and I'm, I'm spiraling about my own career again. But it was a trigger, that triggered me into just going down a hole. And between 2011 then and 2018, things just got progressively worse for me. And when I started writing the book, you know, the, like you asked me how the, how it went the the community was incredible the hockey community was incredible i started reaching out i reached out to the players association uh glenn healy invited me down and wendy mccreary to come down to the uh to toronto to the, the players alumni uh uh offices down in toronto and uh did a little promo with them for uh something they're doing for the pa for players after hockey and, i don't know the hockey community is a great Doug McLean, you mentioned, wrote the forward. You know, I called him out of the blue, got his number from a Baltimore reporter we both still knew of. And, uh, yeah, he was more than happy to meet me in Toronto. He met me He met me after uh, taping the show, Hockey Central. Uh, we went down the street to a restaurant, told him what I was going through, and he said he had no idea. And I said, you'd never have any idea. I wouldn't have ever shared it with you back in those days. Yeah, we were talking about it. And uh, so he agreed to write the forward. And I was, you know, just flattered that he would do that for me. And he was my favorite coach. So it just, I felt like I'm going to ask him, why not? You know, why do I got to lose here? <laughs> I'm going to ask him. He's my favorite coach. And sure enough, uh, he agreed. He's such a, he's such a great guy. He has been so kind to me and I never even played for him. Um, I can't even shout out to Doug McLean as always. I was uh, texting back and forth with him the other day. He's uh, yeah, he's been so great. Gave me a, you know, wore some puck support stuff on the show and yeah, just very, just a very um, kind guy. Um, And just, yeah, just, so I don't, I don't, you know, doubt why he was your favorite coach at all. Um, There's a couple comments I just want to get to. Speaking of of Doug, I know that he was with you in the Skipjack days, uh, but my friend Stuart's watching. He says, hey, Steve, great chat. Love your openness to share. I grew up watching one of your teammates in Baltimore, Doug Wickenheiser. Was he one of the best players you ever played with or against? The late Doug Wickenheiser, former Regina Pat, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, he he absolutely was. And I'll tell you a quick story about Doug Wickenheiser. Um, so I mentioned earlier about Louis Franceschetti coming down to Baltimore. Uh, my second year with the Skipjacks, 
the Capitals that season, at a, I think it was in the middle of that season, acquired Doug Wickenheiser, seasoned NHL veteran, and who's maybe at the end of his career. But still, in my mind, he was an NHLer and uh, he'd been around for a number of years. And he got the skip or the Capitals sent Doug to the minors. And I remember just thinking, what, Doug Wickenheiser playing in the American League? This, this can't be right. So, uh, yeah, he joined our team. That's the year McLean was our – Doug uh, McLean was our coach. And uh, our first round series was against the Adirondack Red Wings. And jo- Doug was my centerman. It was me, uh, Doug Wickenheiser, and Robin Bawa, former Vancouver Canuck, and he might have played for the Sharks as well. And got Doug uh, M- McLean now. Mac used us as the shutdown line in our first round series with Adirondack. And their big gunner, big scorer was Murray Eaves. I think he might have been a Western League guy, too, at one point in junior. And uh, we were assigned to shut down the Murray Eves line. And uh, we won that series four games to two. And uh, Doug Mack gave us a shout-out in the hockey news for his uh, checking line of Wickenheiser, Seftel, and Bawa. So I remember reading that and just kind of being kind of flattered that Doug would give us a plug in the hockey news because uh, – I had never been in the hockey news that many times. So to see my name in there was uh, pretty exciting. No doubt. That's uh, it's cool. These are the stories that, you know, sometimes you just, you never hear of. And, you know, for him to do that, it, that would be cool. I would, you know, no coach is ever going to plug me into a uh, best checking line. I'll tell you that right now, <laughs> maybe biggest pain in the ass, but that's about it. But uh, that's, that's awesome. Um, just a couple other comments and then we'll, uh, we'll get to a little more here. Let me see. There's a couple and I know Sandra's watching um sandra murray says good evening everyone this is an episode you don't want to miss hi sandra i know she's a big supporter of you yeah i hope i want to give a shout out to sandra because she helped me through uh, some of my tough times too uh, about a year a year and a half ago that's another i mean you can't you can there's so many people you can talk to out there and don't sell yourself short like ask for help and in my own case sandra's just one of the many people who helped me out in a tough time so thank you and I'd like to say hi to her too. Yeah, yeah she's she's incredible. She's watching right now. She's been great to me, Sandra. Haven't forgotten about you. Never will. Uh, I'm just personally going through like some some major challenges and mental blocks with the things that I want to be getting accomplished. It's like wow, like um, yeah, just I've been going through like a really hard time. Whenever I say I'm going through a hard time, people like tend to think that I'm like gone back and relapsed so it's really hard to like even talk about it now with people people who are close to me of course they know because they see me every day and they know but uh, people I think get skeptical when you've lived a life like I've lived where it's like hey well if Brady's struggling does that mean he's on edge is he gonna take off and go use it's like no we're not there anymore that's not my life anymore but their everyday struggle of sometimes just wondering why like why keep pushing forward and and just feeling like you mentioned the walls closing in and just not having motivation and having not being able to feel any joy in anything that's that's what i'm dealing with it's not like oh i'm i'm gonna go back and use drugs it's just man like everyday life can sometimes be really hard (laughs) like really hard right yeah absolutely i went to a men's health uh group for a, a few sessions in in my area here in waterloo region and one of the things i got from that which kind of applies to all of us the struggles don't go away you got to keep working at it for sure but they said one of the things I took from this one meeting was find your five. They wanted everyone there. That was the slogan, find your five. So they wanted every man there to find five friends 
that you could have on your phone on a kind of like a speed dial who if you're hurting or struggling or feel like things are getting a little tough or slipping away or you're having a tough point in your, in your daily life that you can call them and with you know no judgment let's just talk and i thought that was really cool because i didn't have one up uh, for so many years and they were yeah. so it just it just made total sense to me i love that find your five i i i like that if they have a mission going on i want to support that that's a that's a catchy uh that's a catchy yeah. phrase and very very powerful and like much like you i had i had none for a long time as well and you know i just encourage anybody watching or listening whether you're watching this live youtube facebook if you're watching on facebook check it out on youtube but if you're listening after anywhere um you know you're not alone like you don't have to do this on your own and there's so many people in the world that are actually good people that are maybe going through something similar or have gone through something similar that legit will listen, that want to help, that want to see you do well, that want to see you come out the other side, whether it be addiction or mental illness or both. Like there are those people and Sandra being one of them, they they're out there. And I just know that for so long, Steve, much like I've heard you say, it was like, well, I'm the only one going through this. I'm no good to anybody. Nobody really cares. Nobody wants to listen to what I have to say. So I guess I got to face this on my own. And that's yeah. certainly not the case, right? Absolutely. And I, I want to clarify when you know with the find your five, when I say I had none, it means that's on me. Like I had people I could have confided in, but I wasn't willing to. So I wanted to deal it deal with everything myself. So it was my responsibility and it's now it's my responsibility to find those five people. And one of the things I learned as well through some of the the education I've got from talking to people is one woman, she was just fantastic. But she said to me, when you don't share your traumas with people, she said, you store them inside. And after a while, there's nowhere for that trauma to go. And three things happen. She said to me, she said, one, you either implode, which is self-harm, commit suicide, those types of things we just do not want to see. Two, she said, you explode, which you lash out and hurt other people. She said, or three, you get physically ill. And it made so much sense to me because in 2018, my body was doing some really strange things. Like my joints were swelling. I had these night sweats that I could not get rid of. I didn't want to get out of bed. Couldn't get out of bed. Uh, I was almost immobile. They were mm -hmm. testing me for everything. And, you know, it turns out it's just it was my body dealing with the trauma and just saying, we're done. Like, you got to deal with this, what's going on inside in your head. Because we're not moving. I basically you know, putting it in my own terms there, but that's what it was. Because I once I got the help and you know started taking care of myself, eating right, getting the exercise, plus getting the therapy I needed, um, all that stuff is gone two years later. Wow. Are you still are are you still keeping up with the therapy? Like how are how are you today? Um, and how long did it take for for you to start to to feel uh, some relief, to get some relief from from these struggles that you were having after initially going in and getting the help that you that you needed? Well, I did. And another thing I haven't mentioned yet, you know, I went to my family doctor and I did try medications that have worked. I think that's been part of it as well. OK, uh, so getting a medication that kind of works for me, not all the medications work for everyone, but I. I did find something that I thought was helping me out. So that was part of it. And um, just, you know, another simple thing in my case, doing something you love. So I grew up in the ranks. I played lacrosse in the summer. I played hockey in the winter. 
I remember a couple of years ago when I was going through this, my wife and my son said, you got to get back to coaching. So I just went back with a friend, coach 10 year olds, major Adam. And, uh, boy, just seeing their smiling faces. I was back in the rink. I just love tying my skates again. Like I don't really need to play anymore. Yeah. I just love tying my skates and feeling the puck. Like I don't need to play games anymore at all. I'll play pickup periodically, but I love coaching and just seeing the smiling faces and the kids at that age, they're so keen. Like they just want to get out there and go, you know, you just put them on the ice and they're like tops. They're just gone. And uh, that's been really good for me too. So just getting back in the rink and doing something you love again and, and contributing to the community that way. I, I absolutely love it. And I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, you know, I've really found the love for the game again. Um, and much like yourself, I may play some senior this year. Like I feel if people look at my elite prospects page, it's, it was cold after 2012 and all of a sudden there's some new entry on there. Cause it looks like I'm going to play for the Maxwell Mustangs this year. My buddy, oh, yeah. owns, my buddy owns the team and he keeps pressuring me to do it. And now that I've, you know, rollerblading and stuff, maybe I'll be in a little bit better shape. But at the end of the day, um, I'm much like you, any just chance to be on the ice to lace up the skates to have a pot a stick in the hand puck and to be in the environment the community the people um interacting and like you said like when i see kids who just have that love to be at the rink to want to just get better and they have that drive um man it brings back some good memories doesn't it yeah it sure does and uh you know at the end of my career I definitely lost some of the love for the game. And maybe that was part of what I was going through, but this going back to minor hockey has certainly brought that joy of just being on the ice back to me and the, being in the, the camaraderie of the group and the team. It's been a really good experience. Are, are you heading back to coach again this upcoming season or yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, last year was, was because of COVID. It was a strange one. We only practiced all year with, and we have a two. We had we only allowed nine kids on the ice, so we split the group into. We had to split them into two, so we had nine and a goalie for to split the ice time equally. This year, still, it's still up in the air right now. Like tryouts are booked, everything's kind of delayed because of COVID. But nothing is set. Nobody really knows where we're heading. But I am coaching, so we'll be on the ice in some format. Maybe practicing again. That's great. At least you know. It- I'm happy to hear that they were at least able to practice, um, though kind of untraditional with nine guys and a goalie. But maybe there's girls playing as well. I'm not sure. So I I should be careful with how I say that. But um, what have you seen? And and we'll wrap it up here again. We'll have to bring you back on again. I I absolutely love this conversation, but we got a few minutes here. And what are you seeing like with the kids that that, you know, you're coaching during this pandemic, you know, being not able to play hockey in the fashion that they want or having to miss ice times or whatever. Um, are you seeing a significant impact in the kids out there today? I'm not seeing it with the boys I coach because okay. they just love being on the ice. I think they had, they still had fun this year, even with the COVID restrictions. But where I do see it is with the, the kid, the midgets and the junior kids. Um, you know, I feel bad for the kids that, yeah. were drafted to junior two years ago and they got a year and a half wiped out and they're still trying to start their junior careers and it still hasn't they haven't played a game those are the kids i think are struggling and the ones we gotta you know really pay attention to those 14 15 16 17 year olds who uh, are just starting those junior ranks and they're the ones i think 
who are really uh, need a little extra attention. But my, I know my kids at the end of the season, their smiles were just as big as they were in September. So I wasn't so worried about them. I am a little concerned about the teenagers and uh, yeah. the young men out there. Yeah. Yeah. I've, that's, you know, that's what I'm noticing as well too. And I was on the ice with uh, a couple of OHL guys not long ago and, and just, you know, they're just chomping at the bit to get going. And, you know, one of them is going into his 19 year old season and only had, you know, one full season as a 17 year old. Um, yeah. It half the games and all of a sudden he's 19 and, and it's, it's like, wow. And I think about these guys who lost out on their overage year, you know, um, yeah. that to me is heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. Um, I feel for, for everybody out there, but I hope that, you know, these, these guys and, and girls in some cases going to colleges and different things can, can find their way and still, you know, find a way to play the game and enjoy it. Because I think, you know, from what I've heard too, as well, there's a lot of girls that are, that are not going back to hockey yeah. after, after this. That's what I'm hearing for whatever reason. Um, I'm hearing from a lot of uh, different people that are involved that girls are being more reluctant to go back and play at the, you know, the young teenage level and that now that they've had a, a year off and it's like, maybe they're interested in new things or all of a sudden they're interested in boys where, you know, they just cause they had that break or whatever the reason is. And it's, it's really, it's disheartening to, to hear that, you know, for sure. And, um, Boy, I don't know. None of us have lived through this. So that's why I say we really got to pay attention to, uh, you know, the, 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 the people around you who, you who you love and care for, because none of us have lived through a this type of period in time where an entire hockey season was canceled or an entire you know school was at home. And there's nothing to there's no checks in place. We say, well, we did it this way before. We've never done had this experience. So. I think it's going to be important for all of us in the fall to, as kids go back to school and hopefully the sports, minor sports get back rolling that we pay close attention to the people around us. That's awesome. Aside from coaching um, and working and that kind of thing, what, what's next for next, what's next for you? What, uh, what projects are, are you looking to take on? I know that you were really enjoying speaking to groups and sharing your story. Is that something that uh, we're going to see more out of Steve Seftel in the near future? Yeah, that's really what I want to do. I want to go into the schools and, and like you said, or we talked about earlier, that's helped me. That's therapy for me too. And when I can share this with, with young people in my community and, you know, I grew up in this area. So I feel I've, this is a cliche or a saying I like is it takes a village. Yeah. And uh, this, this community, Kitchener Waterloo really nurtured me for uh, most of my life. So if I can give it back to the people here and the young people in my community now, I'd love to do that. COVID certainly set me back. I got, I got into a school right before COVID. January 2020 was my first. I went out for the Bell Let's Talk day on January in January 2020, and then COVID hit. Last year, I was supposed to go to the grade school that I grew up going to, Monsignor Haller here, and uh, COVID I couldn't go into the school because of COVID. So that's still number one on my list for 2022 in January. And it'll be, it'll be a thrill for me to go back to the, the grade school I attended through grade up to grade eight and uh, still there and still in my old neighborhood. So yeah, that's number one on the agenda, but that's really what I want to go with this for myself is going into the local community. There's many schools around here and 
I feel like that's where I can make the greatest impact in this area. I, I love to hear that. And I, I truly believe that you already have um, by sharing your story and you will continue to do so. And uh, much like yourself, that's that's where my heart is, too, is I, I'm that is like my maybe not my ultimate goal, but one of my the top of my list is to get out there in whatever capacity, whether it be at schools or hockey teams or well, an entire hockey organization or whatever, and just find a way to uh, get, you know, get through to them. Even if it's just one person per time when you go and you can help one person. I mean, yeah. that's what it all comes down to, right? And the connections that I've made um, since starting to share my story are seemingly endless, where I'm getting people reaching out to me all the time, uh, you know, just first of all saying thank you for sharing your story, but then also sharing their story um, or their son or daughter's story or whomever and it's it's been great it's been a lot of it's it's a big undertaking has it been like that for you like have a lot of people started to reach out to you since uh writing the book they absolutely have and you just you just jogged my memory to something i hadn't thought of so i'm glad you brought it up the biggest thing change i've seen for me that has been really reward rewarding is men i have men my age coming to me yeah saying i feel the same way I've gone through this my whole life. I didn't know what to do. Or they'll they'll tell me their individual stories that led to their own downfalls. And that kind of blows me away each time because men, as men, we don't generally share those things with other people, and especially other men. So that's been really rewarding and uh, kind of satisfying just to know I've had, I've allowed some of these men in my life and some strangers, some friends, to come forward and share stories that I didn't know in the past. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty eye-opening, right? And and kind of, it's not, I don't want to say that it's good because I don't want anybody to have to go through uh, any difficult times, but it's sort of a, a big sigh of relief when you realize that, hey, I'm not alone, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And they say one in four people suffer from a mental health issue and the way I heard said to me one time, if it's one in four, then it's probably in your house. Yeah. Thought, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I'll say it again. I've said it probably a hundred times on this show, you know, show me somebody who doesn't have, you know, somebody in their life that's close to them that hasn't dealt with mental illness or addiction or both. Like it's, it's so common. And the, the sooner that we all come together and realize that, you know, a lot of us are fighting some of the same or very similar battles and we're not, having to do it on our own that there's people out there to support us through it then you know these these suicides these overdoses just life of hell it doesn't doesn't have to be quite as hard for people right at least that's been my experience that's definitely uh, i totally agree with that and uh you got to be there for the people in your community and like i said it takes a village so you can't do it on your own you need uh, the support of the people around you and if, if you ask for it People are usually, I find they'll at, they will want to help. Absolutely. But you've got to let them know sometimes. Like you got to take, that's where I say to many people I've talked to, or you got to take ownership. Like you got to say, I know I'm struggling, but I need your help. What can, and they'll, you'll get it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, man. Before I let you go, um, I want to get to uh, just a, a couple, couple last comments here. 
um, as before we sign off. Um, oh, Jesse uh, Tucker watching. Shout out to Jess. I was, as you mentioned, the Belleville Bulls, I was like, oh, I wish I had my Belleville Bulls jersey right here because Jesse just sent me an old school Belleville Bulls jersey. Imagine I had that on when you came in. Oh. And you're all right. <laughs> yeah. So it's, oh, that uh, would yeah. be a. I would like that would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wish I, I wish I would have been able to grab it. Uh, but shout out to Jess. I know he's watching. Is it black or yellow? It's yellow. Yellow. Yeah. yeah they had the home yellows for a lot of years instead of yeah. white. Yeah, it's it's a yellow one. Also, Kingston royalty watching. Dave Gilmore, Doug Gilmore's brother, was watching. Says good Brady, great show. Shout out to to Dave. Uh, absolutely love the Gilmores. Uh, all of them. Dave's been so great to me as well, and so is Doug. Um, is he in incredible. Kingston? Is he yeah, still in Kingston? I'm... Still is, yeah, still in. Well, then I would say uh, definitely give a shout-out to the city of Kingston. I love playing junior hockey there. I still – my wife's from there. Um, my first son was born there. It's still a second home for me, for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, it's. Uh, I've only been – been through there a couple times never spent any time but i have plans to go up there i'm a huge tragically hip fan as well too so gotta spend some time in kingston um we got a couple more before i let you go here uh michael says brady steve awesome podcast enjoyed it thanks for watching michael um sandra says steve i want you to know i believe in you and in the power your life story has to positively impact others, your wife is an angel, and I, impre- I appreciate all her rosary dedications. Oh, very nice. You're welcome, Sandra. Sandra's, a, Sandra's an angel for sure. Brody Kerbison says, thank you for coming on tonight, Steve, telling your stories and spending your time. It is appreciated. Lindsay Schmidt, Daniel Miner's sister, the late Daniel Miner, love the miners, I love you guys so much. She's watching. She says, find your five. Love this idea. But Steve, you are absolutely correct. There are no five unless you are ready to talk. Very much yeah. true. David Carlson says, thank you, Stephen Brady. Appreciate you very much. Hashtag courage. And uh, the last thing Sandra was saying, I'm doing my best to address the impact COVID has had on the major on the major junior level, particularly the, the OHL, they're still reeling. So our thoughts are with all the OHL players. Sandra, you're doing amazing work. Steve, where can people find your book? Uh, on Amazon. So uh, I'll give you a couple of things. It's on Amazon, uh, the paperback. You can also get it on Amazon through Kindle, Kindle Unlimited. And what was a really cool experience for me as I recorded the Audible version so I narrated my own story. So it's also available on Audible. I had never done anything like that. Uh, it was really fun to go in the studio and and record my story. So I had a, a great deal of fun with that experience. No kidding. That's awesome. Um, I have I have you know dreams of writing a book and and walking that path one day too. So expect me being like, hey, Steve, uh, I need your help with this, uh, whatever. But uh, I'll I, be here for you because, uh, you know, I, I had a friend of mine gave me an ex-player, Doug Smith, who's also wrote a couple books, and uh, he was my mentor. So I would certainly uh, be able to help. I would certainly like to help you if you ever have any questions. I, I very much appreciate it. And I, you know, I, I'm sure we're going to be talking in the near future. You're a welcome guest on the show anytime. Keep up the good work. And who knows, maybe one day uh, we can join forces and combat this mental health issue together because, you know, it takes it takes numbers to make a difference, in my opinion. But we can all, you know, chip away at it 
one piece at a time, right? So you, yeah, for sure. You keep up the good work. And as I said earlier, congratulations. Uh, you're doing awesome work with your podcast. And I know, you know you're working on yourself and at the same time bringing all this support to the, your community and all the listeners out there. So there's a lot of work you're doing. I know you're working hard at it. So keep it up. I appreciate it. I think we all do. Thank you, Steve. Very much appreciated. I appreciate your time. Thank thank your wife for letting me borrow you for an hour and 20 minutes on a Sunday night. I I appreciate it big time. And uh, we will uh, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Absolutely. Cheers. Thanks, Steve. That's uh, former NHLer Steve Seftel, mental health advocate, my good friend now. We've opened a can of worms, Steve. Now I'm going to be... Uh, calling on you a lot more often now thank you so much for your time i'm gonna get to one sponsor we'll be right back to wrap up the show stay with us pocket of hell and back is brought to you by pride tape pride tape is a badge of support from teammates coaches parents and pros to young lgbtq players it shows every player that they belong playing the sport they love and that we're all on the same team Show your support for teammates, coaches, and fans in the LGBTQ community by wrapping your stick with Pride Tape. Every roll of tape will make an impact in sports and beyond. Inclusion starts with leadership. Check out some of the ideas of how you can get involved at youcanplayproject.org. Check out Pride Tape at pridetape.com. For more information, you can send an email to aubrey at pridetape.com. That's A-U-B-R-E-E, Aubrey, at PrideTape.com. You can find PrideTape on Facebook.com slash PrideTape, on Twitter at PrideTape, and at PrideTape on Instagram. PrideTape thanks all of you for being champions for change. Make sure you guys check out PrideTape on Instagram. Shout out to my friends at PrideTape. They hooked us up with some tape to take up to North Bay last week or a couple weeks ago. Was able to take some of the Rink of Dreams, hand a couple rolls out too. Support their mission. We can all do more. And that leads me to my last point is, yes, I've been having a hard time lately, right? And I'm perfectly okay to talk about it, uh, but it's been it's been a real struggle. It's been a real struggle. Like, no doubt, I'm in my own head. Uh, I feel much like Steve was talking about. We're almost like immobilized. It's It's not easy. So if... You're going through something. You have to promise me to keep fighting because I'm going to keep fighting. I'm not going to give up on this. These shows right here are the most relief that I get, I think, out of any time during the week. These are very therapeutic for me. So I want to thank Steve Seftel. I want to thank all my guests who have been a part of this show and to everybody who's ever listened to it, watched it. Once again, thank you. Uh, because what this show has done for me personally is it's beyond my my vocabulary even there's i don't know where i'm at without this show and it's not just me clicking a button and getting on here and talking it's the conversations that i've been able to have like we had the one tonight and just kind of getting outside of myself listening you know taking feedback all of that it's been such a great experience for me and it's such a gift so thank you because these are really when i'm feeling my best when i'm doing these shows When the lights go out, when I hit end broadcast, when everything goes, like I'm still at night, I'm left alone by myself. I still struggle. I think that's part of life, but there is hope out there. You know, I still having a hard time, but I think back where not that long ago, I was doing anything and 
everything to make myself feel better. And by that, I mean using any drug that I could put in my system to try to find some sort of relief. And I'm no longer running from myself, running from my childhood trauma, running from my guilt, my shame, all of those things. I'm not running from it anymore. So that's a start for me. Now it's just continuing the grind, you know, facing the day and saying, okay, what can I accomplish today? What can I actually get done today? What are the things and having a plan and doing all of that? It's been, it's been a challenge for me. It goes back to, again, what we talked about earlier on the podcast as a hockey player, you have everything laid out for you. Be here, then eat this, do that. For me, life after hockey has been a hell at some times, just trying to make it through a day. So I just want to say thank you for being patient with me. There's so many things that I want to tackle and do and things that I wanted to have done by now that I haven't. And it, it wears on me. And I'm just not where I want to be at in my life at almost 34 years old. Next week, six days, I'll be 34. And when I look myself in the mirror, it's like, uh, well, maybe you should be a, a little further ahead. Then I have to take a step back and realize where I was at and where I'm at today and that these things take time. I'm going to be patient with myself. You be patient with yourself. Don't give up. I won't give up. Shout out to my family back home. I miss you guys. It's been way too long, especially my kids, Brooklyn and Brody. I love you guys. I miss you. I will never give up trying to be your dad. Just be there for you in any kind of way. To my dad, come out and play some golf. Hurry up. Let's go. I haven't seen you in way too long. Can't wait to give you a hug. My mom, love you guys. Everyone back home. Can't wait to get back home. Make sure if you're watching on YouTube, press that like button, smash that subscribe button, share it with your friends. If you're listening to the audio, please rate and review. We're back Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern with Wade McLeod. This episode is going to be a very, very, very powerful episode. I got two minutes to wrap this up. Let me tell you a little preview about Wade McLeod. I've known Wade McLeod since I was five years old. He was one of the best players around. He's from Coquitlam. I'm from Port Coquitlam. We never saw eye to eye. I was, like I said, a pain in the ass. I used to cross the line on the ice with the things that I would say, sometimes the things that I would do. There was one particular incident where I cut maybe a little bit too deep to Wade. We may talk about that, but from that moment at like 12 years old, we never saw eye to eye. We ended up trying to train together later on in life after me being in recovery. He went to Northeastern University, played in the American Hockey League. Three years ago, he was diagnosed with stage three brain cancer, okay? And he has now been cleared, has no more cancer. He is now on his way back to pro hockey after missing almost three seasons of hockey. Wade McLeod is free of cancer. He's training back home with our old trainer, Kai Hainonen of Extreme Dryland. In my opinion, the best trainer in BC for sure. Join us when Wade shares his story. We're going to talk about playing against each other and as kids and how we didn't really like each other probably and, and trying to move forward. Now that we're men, we both battled different things. Me being an addiction, him being cancer. He's on the recovery journey back to pro hockey. He's going to share his story right here. Episode 69 of Hockey to Hell and Back. You don't want to miss it. 8 p.m. Eastern right here. Live Facebook, YouTube. Audio will be available after the show. So pumped to talk to Wade. So pumped to talk to Wade. It's going to be a hell of a show. I've known him for almost 30 years, but we were never friends. And since we started talking, it's like, hey, let's let's put our differences aside. 
Let's make a difference in this world and let's support Wade on his recovery and his comeback to professional hockey. I'm so proud of this guy. Anyways, guys, we'll see you Wednesday. Until then, be kind to each other. Be kind to yourselves. Stay grateful. And remember, have a great day if you so choose. Hockey to Hell and Back is brought to you by Performance Wellness. The collaboration between First Star Therapy and MindFrame brings a flexible, holistic program to athletes. The goal is to empower and enhance every athlete's well-being on and off the field of play through focus on intentful movement and mindful practices. You can contact them at consult at firststartherapy.com and team at mindframe.info. Plus, you can check them out on the web at firststartherapy.com and follow First Star on Instagram at firststar.therapy and at MindFrame on Twitter plus MindFrameFit on Instagram. I want the real stuff, everybody listen up, cause I'll only say it once, I'm gonna show you all the path, if you want it bad, I'm gonna show you every side, yeah, how you can get it back, yeah, cause I ain't never done, I'll be number one, working hella hard until I get just what I want, yeah, rises like the sun, yeah, fatal like a gun, shooters gonna shoot and I'm gonna shoot until I fall, yeah, let's do it alone, so I gotta get through it, and the only thing I know is to love what I'm doing, Never give up, never slow till I finally prove it. Never listen to the no's, I just wanna keep moving. Yeah, I put out all the art, it's my only medicine. Yeah, everything I do, I'm just being genuine. Yeah, I'm sick of being screwed, feel my own adrenaline. Yeah, I do just what I do, and I hope you let me in, let me in, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm stable. Oh yeah, no label. Oh yeah, you know me. I am only a pet. I'm lonely, but damn.